the HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 119 of the HG Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And we continue with our Merry Podmas selection with a movie that's slightly more Christmas light than some of the others we're going to be covering. But it's a movie that I have wanted to cover pretty much since we started this podcast because it is one of my personal favourites. So let's get on with 1984's Night of the Comet. It's time to say Merry Podmas once again. We're covering our third Christmas-themed movie. And we're taking a look at the movie which takes place on the day of this podcast release. Yes, it's 11 days before Christmas. And the 11 days before Christmas is the start point of 1984's Night of the Comet, directed by Tom Eberhardt. And starring, amongst others, Catherine Mary Stewart, Kelly Maroney and Robert Beltran. And with some of those names you just listed, you had a big smile on your face. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to read a brief synopsis of Night of Comet from IMDb, as we didn't have a lot to work with with this one, sadly. No Nick Reganus, where are you? A comet wipes out most of life on Earth, leaving two valley girls fighting against cannibal zombies and a sinister group of scientists. That's kind of all you need to know to set the tone to ease you into this film. It is, absolutely. About the time that I saw this, there were two movies that I was really obsessed with around the time on VHS. One was Trancers, which was the Empire movie directed by Charles Band. The other one was Night of the Comet. I love Trancers. I love Night of the Comet. Having to go back to this movie to watch it again was no great hardship at all for me. I could pretty much act in this movie. I know what's coming next. I know most of the lines in the movie. I know where all the jokes are coming. It's just one of my perfect movies. And I know that it's a little silly, and I guess some of the horror isn't as hard driving as it might be for some people to enjoy it, but I've got a huge amount of affection for this movie. Not least because when I first saw it, I had an absolutely massive crush on Catherine Mary Stewart's character, and by definition Catherine Mary Stewart as well. The crush on Kelly Maroney came a little bit later. It was kind of chopping mall, the Zero Boys era. But I remember renting this on VHS and being absolutely blown away by it. It's funny. It's a little bit scary. But the horror is undercut by the humour in it. It's a really, really fun experience. And it continues our tradition of focusing on movies that have strong female leads driving the plot. Absolutely. And what really interests me about this is how it was a precursor to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So 
whereas I'm not familiar with Night of the Comet, it was something that passed me by, something that I wasn't really aware of until I met Darren and he told me this is one of his favourite movies. The creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who I will not name on this podcast, <laughs> for obvious reasons, was inspired by this movie specifically with his 1992 feature film version. Not so much the TV show that was spawned afterwards, that was kind of its own entity, but definitely that idea of the stake-wielding valley girl kicking ass, that was all derived from Night of the Comet, which is really interesting. And I found this a really easy, enjoyable watch. This was no hardship for me to sit through. I think, as we've said on the horror side, it's pretty light and frothy. There's, you know, not much scare factor in this at all. Yeah, I think it would be one that if you're a little bit unsure about the horror genre, this is definitely a gateway. This is not anything too frightening, in my opinion. But I think you have got to be very much into the genre generally. And I'm not just talking horror, I'm talking about genre in terms of cult movie type films. It's very much like got that midnight movie feel. It's a B movie. It doesn't take itself seriously in any way. It's low budget, but it utilises its resource as well. I mean, the fact that they use this brick dust to show that how um, people have disintegrated after the comet. So I think that's just really simple and effective. And it does all that. And it, it looks really good as well. Like, aesthetically, I really like the vibe it was going through with the kind of strong orangey colours. Like, that was really cool as well. So, yeah, as I say, like, I wasn't blown away by any means, but definitely... This was a fun watch, and I could see how this would be a fun sleepover movie back in the 80s, well into the 90s, when VHSs were still going strong. Yeah, I think it's dated a little bit, but it's bound to have dated because it's very 80s, this movie. It wears its 80s credentials on its sleeve quite a lot of the time. The fashions are very 80s. The attitudes to certain things are very 80s. The setting is extremely 80s. There's a focus on things like shopping malls, which is a feature of that era. In fact, the shopping mall that is featured in Night of the Comet is the shopping mall that ends up in pretty much every other movie. It's the one that's in Commando. I think it's the one that's in Terminator 2 as well. It's the Sherman Oaks Mall anyway. It's like been in every single movie. But this does have a style all of its own. The effective visual stuff was pretty much done by sticking a red filter on the camera and that's your lot but it really does work and it is an example of a movie having very little in terms of resourcing and using tricks and filming techniques to make it look a lot more expensive than his budget because i think the budget was about seven hundred thousand dollars there's a few different stories about the budget i think it's it's generally accepted it was about $700,000. For that time, even though you'd think, oh, 700000 considering with some of the micro-budgets today, I think that's quite a lot of money, but not really, because at that sort of time, and the sort of filming schedule that they had to adhere to, and filming very late at night or very early in the morning to get empty streets in LA, things like that. So it was probably quite a gruelling shoot, but the enthusiasm of everybody in it comes across and from reading articles and from listening to commentaries it was quite a jolly shoot i think everybody had quite a good time filming this movie and it does come across that way and it does have a couple of fairly prominent actors in there 
cult or otherwise. It's got Jeffrey Lewis as a scientist who is great in this. He's excellent. And it's got Mary Warrenoff, who is one of my favourite cult actresses as well. So she was in things like Eating Raoul and Death Race 2000, and she plays one of the scientists. And Tom Eberhardt actually allowed her to write one of the scenes. She has a fairly amusing yet tragic demise about two-thirds of the way through the movie, and she's written pretty much all of the dialogue that her character says to Hector, who is Robert Beltran's character, when he discovers her in the radio station that they've been holed up in. That was quite a nice touch. There's lots of things I love about this movie. I do like the snappy sense of humour. It's got the world-beating line when Samantha, who is stuck in this awful party being thrown by her stepmom, and her stepmom is making romantic advances to this awful bloke called Chuck, while her husband, and that's Sam's and Regina's dad, is away in Nicaragua, maybe, to talk about Sandinistas. He's some special forces guy, but he's away. And while he's away, his wife is... Well, you don't really see her making too many advances to Chuck, but it's kind of implied that there may be something going on with her and Chuck, who is just a dreadful bloke. And Samantha comes out with the killer line, you were born with an asshole, Doris. You don't need Chuck. Which, uh... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very scathing one-liners in it, which is it's quite fun. It, it is very sharp and witty. So that is definitely fun with the dialogue. And again, that, you know, inspired what was to come with Buffy and with things like Scream, I'm guessing, just having that really punchy, pop culture dialogue. So, yeah, it's nice to kind of see where it all originates from in some ways. It is a Christmas movie. It's set at Christmas. You get Santa Claus. I'm having a bit of an in-joke with friends at the moment about Bad Santa. If you uh, attended Abattoir with me, you'll get it. <laughs> but yeah, it's that kind of thing where this Santa was like a romantic Santa carrying a bunch of roses. I mean, I don't know if it's an accurate trail or the kind of vision of Santa that you would normally have, especially considering the other movies we've covered so far for Mary Poppins. It's quite fun all the same. So it's not too heavy on the Christmas elements. It's definitely there in the background, though, and it just sets the tone for the season, so you just get a sense of time of year, which is really nice. And obviously, this is just the opportunity to include this in Mary Podmas because we missed it for Darren's birthday. Yeah, we did. I just had to crowbar it in somewhere, and it was like, <laughs> oh, what's the other themes of this movie? Oh, it's set at Christmas. We can do it at Mary Podmas. We'll have it as a Mary Podmas movie. There's lots and lots of things that I personally get out of this movie. The fact that it's got a very old video game at the start called Tempest, which Regina, who is Catherine Mary Stewart's character, is extremely good at. I do have a T-shirt with the high score table from Night of the Comet on it with DMK at sixth place. And it is a point where Regina is such an overachiever on this video game that she's got all the top scores. But then one day when she's working in the cinema, she suddenly realises a guy called DMK who has taken one of the top 10 spots. Now she works hard to knock him off the top 10 board again. DMK will come into focus later on in the movie. DMK wasn't originally in the plot, apart from the fact that he was a set of initials on a video game high scoreboard. But as the movie wore on, there was this feeling that maybe we should include DMK somewhere. So you do find out who DMK is in the movie. Very late on, but you do find out who he is. And it's quite a nice reveal at the end because it ties up the start and the finish. 
it's a great movie. For me, it's a great movie anyway. The fact that the actors, specifically Catherine Mary Stewart, had the chance to do a lot of their own stunts. She does kick ass quite a lot in this movie. She beats up zombies. She hits people with computer keyboards. She rides motorbikes. Well, apparently she didn't ride the motorbike in this movie because she couldn't ride one. But the movie says that she can ride a motorbike. It's a movie that has a very minimalist plot. It's easy to follow. There's various situations that they get themselves into. There's quite an amusing sequence in the shopping mall when they fall foul of the shop boys who have now taken over the mall and they control it with various firearms. Now, I don't know why they're controlling the mall, why why they need to have this department store, but they are holed up in it and they don't particularly like people coming into their shop, which leads to the great line from the leader of the shop boys, I'm not crazy, I just don't give a fuck. That's possibly my favourite line in the movie. It was the line that was there just to give it a PG-13 rating in the States. If they'd have had two fucks, it would have been an R rating, apparently. Over here at the time, there was basically an edict that if you said the F word at all in a movie, it was a 15. You couldn't say fuck in a movie and have it rated for kids because basically there was no gap between the parental guidance and the 15. There was no 12 at the time this movie came out. Interestingly, though, this movie is still rated 15, regardless of the fact that the horror is reasonably mild, and there is that one swear word in it, but the threat in certain places is quite strong. There's a dream sequence which is about as nasty as this movie gets, and it's a little bit unpleasant, and it's a little bit gory, and I think that still is the sequence that causes the issue as to why it's not rated 12. But If you see some of the other stuff that's rated 15 that's kicking around these days, this is very, very, very mild in comparison. You won't be having nightmares about some of the stuff in Night of the Comet. You'll be laughing most of the time, to be honest. And that's what it wants you to do. It's not taking the piss to the extent that it's making light of everything that it does, because there's a couple of fairly dramatic sequences, and some of the horror is reasonably scary. But for gorehounds, they're not going to, watch Night of the Comet and get disturbed by it. I think most teenagers would watch Night of the Comet now and not be disturbed by it. But that's not what it's here for. It's just a fun movie. It's giving the premise, like, what would happen if the world ended and the people that were in charge of serving society were two valley girls, which is a great idea. But not just two valley girls, two valley girls who have been trained in combat by their soldier dads, so they can kick ass. They're not silly. These two girls, they might have the drives of teenage girls and they might be obsessed with fashion and boys and all that sort of stuff, but they can also kick ass. They're definitely characters that are not standard for this sort of movie. Certainly not this sort of movie at the time. And I think that's possibly one of the things that attracted me to it because. I do like smart characters that can kick ass. I really like smart characters that can kick ass who happen to be female as well. Because often it was just like, there's this super cool guy and he's so capable and nothing phases him. And the 80s movies were full of people like that. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's another guy who 
can do no wrong and the women are swimming over him. But this flips the script. You've got two girls who are just as capable, if not more capable, than the guys in these action movies. And it's wonderful. I absolutely love Night of the Comet. I don't think it's diminished in its power to win me over 84, what, 39 years on. We're talking about nearly a 40-year-old movie here, but it still feels fresh. It's zippy. I absolutely love this movie. And my issue now with this movie is that I know that Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney do a lot of conventions. And I always go on about not being starstruck by various people that appear in movies. This is probably a case in point where it would be the exception because I'm not sure whether I'd just be a gibbering mess if I was confronted by the two leads in this movie because they've been such a big part of my life over the years. I'm not sure I could handle being in the same space as them. Well, hopefully I'll be there for moral support if they ever do make an appearance at Oricon. <laughs> but yeah, I really like how they are kick-ass female characters, but they're also quite real as well, like the way they're written as teenagers, the fact that, you know, they're fighting over boys. I mean, especially that line from Kelly Maroney's character about it being the end of the world and her sister's taking the last guy on earth from her. I can't remember the quote exactly, but it's good fun in that way. And I know what you mean. This was the exception when you have all these really buff action heroes. You know, you have stuff like Rambo and Commando and all these, you know, action movies that we've sort of touched on, which is fine. They all have their place. They're great. But it's that unlikely heroine as well, which works. And as I said, this is actually probably been a lot more influential than we've ever realised because if it wasn't for this movie, would we have got Buffy? That's how I look at it. So that's pretty interesting. Another fact about it is it opened the same week as A Nightmare on Elm Street. So that's why it didn't do as well financially as A Nightmare on Elm Street because obviously that was a big horror movie of the time. So that's pretty interesting. And also, I'm not sure if this is a rumour or an actual fact, but apparently Heather Langenkamp did audition for the role of the Kelly Maroney character in it. All is well. The right casting did go ahead. Yeah, that's true. And listening to the commentary for the umpteenth time on the night of the comic Blu-ray, Kelly Maroney does mention Heather Langenkamp auditioning. And I think it was an interesting insight into what was happening at the time because both Kelly Maroney and Catherine Maroney were going on about the auditioning process in 80s LA. And it was like all the same group of actresses going for different movies and you would see all the same actresses when they went to audition for things. So it sounded quite a fun time in that era. You're right, Heather Langkamp as Sam. I think Kelly Maroney brings a bit more comedic flair to it. Heather Langkamp, obviously, definitive role in Nightmare on Elm Street. Don't see anybody else who could have played Nancy. But here as well, Kelly Maroney owns the part of Sam. And at the start, when you see her in the cheerleader outfit, you just think, oh, you know, is she just going to be this stereotypical airheaded character just there for comic relief? Again, the movie flips the script on you because they show you what she's like, but the visuals don't match what the character is because she's just as smart as her sister and just as kick-ass and just as ready to take on what's left of the world and the zombies and the evil scientists. So you do get this really cool double act at the centre of the movie. Yes, Robert Beltran gets to be a little bit heroic as Hector, and he does come through at the end, and he is allowed to be the hero at some points. 
but not all the time. A lot of the script is driven by these two teenagers working out how to get through basically an apocalyptic situation, but having this Valley Girl spin on it. What would you do if you came across a deserted radio station? Well, yeah, there's the strangeness of going into a deserted building. Are there zombies in there? You need to check it out. There's a little bit of tension as they're going through the rooms, trying to work out whether there's somebody in there trying to get them. Soon as they realise that the radio station is safe, Samantha goes and pretends to be the DJ and starts making announcements, which is where she mentions that she's taking requests from all you Teenage Comet Zombies out there. Teenage Comet Zombies was, I believe, the working title of this movie. I don't think they ever were going to release it as Teenage Comet Zombies, but there's definitely accounts of people getting scripts with Teenage Comet Zombies as the title. I think Night of the Comets is a better title in some ways, but it also makes it sound a bit generic, if there's a fault yeah. with it. Teenage Comet Zombies is more of a grabby title, but it also doesn't sum the movie up. I get why they changed the title, but Night of the Comet makes it sound like a, a much more weighty sci-fi movie than it is. So I think if you looked at the title, you'd just think, oh, that's probably a little bit worthy and a little bit heavy on the sci-fi. Whereas if you actually watched it, you'd think, yeah, it's got a sci-fi angle on, but it is just basically a high-concept comedy with a bit of horror chucked in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been aware of this title for a long time and I didn't really know what to expect with it. So I kind of went in a little bit blind with this one, which was good. And I, well, I don't think I was expecting it to be a really serious movie by any means, but you, you just never know. I didn't know how far it was going to go on the gore and the sci-fi and what it was all going to culminate in. So it was kind of nice going into this blind, but I do agree with you. And funnily enough, I was watching Minty Comedic Arts' review of this film top 10 facts video he mentions he prefers the working title over the actual title because he says he feels it does what it says on the tin so when i was researching the facts on the movie a quote that stood out to me that i found quite interesting that kind of summarizes the film it says mary warrenov initially doubted the film would have any longevity saying in in 1986 that it's not a cult tour it is a fad movie she went on to explain that the film will date very quickly because it's about Valley Girls shopping at the mall and the bomb. And it's not ahead of its time. It's not behind its time. It's just a combination of in elements. And I think that is fairly accurate. However, saying that it has grown a cult following over the years, and that is probably down to it being re-released. I think it's been produced by Arrow over here in the UK. I believe that's the copy that you've got. It is, yeah. I do have the Arrow one. It was available for a very short space of time. The rights about this movie are very interesting because they keep disappearing and reappearing and different companies have it and then it disappeared entirely. The UK, it's been quite hard to get hold of Night of the Comet over the years. It was on CBS Fox Video originally and then it just vanished and I think MGM had it at one point. I think MGM probably still have it, but, but Arrow did put the Blu-ray out, which clearly was my cue to go and get it as soon as they released it. So I do have that copy. It's something that isn't really all that easy to get hold of at the moment, which is a bit of a shame, really, because I think people are missing out on it. In terms of it being a fad movie, I think Murray Warrenoff is kind of right, because it's very much a snapshot of that period in time. It's that particular bit of the 80s. 
and I think if you remember it or you've got some exposure to that sort of era of stuff then I think it lands better I think it may not quite land as well if you've got somebody that's a teenager now and is looking back at this I think there's a certain amount of fascination about what the 80s were like but it seems very distant now to a young audience and I can see why people might not get on with it these days even though you've got identifiable characters and identifiable traits it is still very much of its time even though it has grown this cult following over the years but the script and the performances carry it through there's lots and lots of snappy dialogue apparently when people ask about where the deleted scenes are for this movie there are no deleted scenes really because they pretty much used everything in this movie there are probably bits of outtakes in places but generally what you see up on the screen is more or less what they shot so when people say well where are the extras well most of the stuff is up on the screen there were certain wrinkles to the plot that they were gonna use but didn't for instance sam kelly moroni's character was gonna die in the original story which I think would have just put a massive downer on the second half of the movie. And I think everybody realised it would. You can't kill Sam in this movie. You can't kill either of Sam or Regina. It's not that sort of movie. But there is a point at which Sam is injected with something and you're led to believe that she's been poisoned and killed. She isn't. Because Mary Warrenoff's character has just injected her with something to knock her out to make the other scientists believe that Sam is dead. But... It's a weird decision to make to have this double act of sisters and then kill one of them. That seems a really dark place to go in a movie like this. And I'm glad they didn't do it. And I'm glad they decided to have them both survive at the end. It does lead to some interesting moments when they go to the scientist's base, specifically when Regina is bombarded with a load of questions as to her fitness and general well-being because spoiler alert the evil scientists are farming people's blood to try and stave off the effects of the comet and at one point jeffrey lewis's character says are you pregnant and then regina says no thought i was once though and then jeffrey lewis says that's not important and immediately she says ah well that's what you think longest three weeks of my life Absolutely, when you're a teenage girl facing that sort of situation. So one fact that I do want to mention before we close off, because I feel it's a throwback to one of our past episodes from a couple of years ago, and I'll let you guess which one. The fact is, during the crowd scenes at the beginning, there is a brief shot of LL Cool J on a microphone. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I did not spot that. I will have to run it back to see if I can spot him. I thought that is a a pretty cool fact. He must have been very young when he was in this movie. I don't know how true that is, but that's what it says on IMDb. Take it with a pinch of salt, if you will. Yeah, I didn't know that fact about LL Cool J. I'm going to go back and watch it now because I didn't know this LL Cool J thing. I don't need an excuse to go back and watch Night of the Comic anyway, but I will use it as an excuse to go back and watch it. It's an interesting one, that, because considering there's, uh, you know, the other facts that are floating around about this movie, LL Cool J wasn't on my bingo card for facts about Night of the Comets. Yeah, it's one of those movies that I will recommend 
to most people. In fact, let's just not say it. Most people, I recommend it to absolutely everybody. It's like, you got to see Night of the Comet. It's a movie that I think deserves more credit than it actually got. I don't think there's a groundswell of people that actively hated the movie. But I think at the time, because of certain factors, Nightmare on Elm Street being one, it kind of got swept away and it went under the radar for quite a few years. And it's building up this cult following now. And there are a lot of people now that are fans of Night of the Comet because you only have to see the people that turn up at these conventions when Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney get there. There's like tons of people at these conventions. So there is a Night of the Comet cult building up. Part of me thinks that it's about fucking time that there was a cult around Night of the Comet because for years I was talking about this movie and people were like, what? What's that movie? It's the same as trances. I mean, the cult of the cult of trances ought to be bigger as well, but certainly the cult of Night of the Comet ought to be huge in my book. It's one of those things. It's it's my obsession. I don't really get obsessed with a huge amount of movies. I do you like, sure? yeah, I do like movies, but I mean, the obsession doesn't really kind of kick in. This is one of those. A ghost waits. I'm obsessed with a ghost waits, and I'm I'm obsessed with some Vargento stuff, but. I can appreciate movies without going sort of full bore on them. This one, I am completely, I have no filter about this movie. It's one of the movies that I will just say, right, definitely go see it. And yeah, some people will come back and say, well, it was all right, but it wasn't great. And I understand why. I mean, I, I, it's just, it was at a certain point in my life and it was a certain point in which movies like this really didn't get made in the 80s. As we've said, it was more to do with macho male types going and blowing shit up for 90 minutes and there's nothing wrong with that i like that sort of movie but this was something refreshingly different i have to say and it just managed to catch me at the right moment and it stayed with me ever since and i absolutely fucking love this movie it's so good i will continue to love this movie i'm still gonna keep recommending this to people who haven't seen it until everybody on the planet has seen Night of the Comet. And hopefully, if I do get to meet the stars at a convention, I won't make a complete ass of myself. It's one of those situations that I, it can't be guaranteed because the amount of years my crush on Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney has gone on, it's continuing to burn bright all these years. So I apologise in advance. If you love this movie as much as I do, then there's no telling what sort of gibbering idiot that you are going to get in front of you. So apologies, Catherine. Apologies, Kelly. It could happen. And on that note, I'm really glad I did get the chance to watch this movie. It's definitely a snapshot of its time. It definitely has a style and a vibe that I quite enjoy. And as I say, it's a precursor to all things that I loved growing up. So really appreciate it for that. It has a respectful 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 79% tomato meter. So critics are really um, appreciating this film and valuing it a lot more. And then a 58% audience score. I think these scores are fairly fair enough. I mean, it's it's not a groundbreaking, life-changing movie, unless you're Darren. But for <laughs> <laughs> the rest of us, it is a good time. I would definitely watch it as a midnight movie at a festival or maybe a grown-up sleepover, which I tend to sometimes have because, you know, nostalgia. Yeah, absolutely. No, it is a fun movie to play at midnight and it is a good audience movie as well. It's light, it's frothy, it's got a couple of very minor scares, 
but it's the sort of thing that people would enjoy in groups as well as me just playing it over and over again sitting on my own and thinking oh night of the comet again how many times have i seen it i've lost count i don't care i'll watch it again i'm glad to be finally covering it for this podcast i have tried to temper my reaction i've not gone completely fanboy about it i do have to keep a little bit of calm about my reaction to this movie but it is one of my favorites it's a movie that i will continue to watch all that remains for me to say is let's play a game it's called scary noises i do wish we could chat longer hi it's darren here and i am going to chat longer just for a short while you remember how we were talking about the non-availability of night of the comet on blu-ray here in the uk well literally an hour after we recorded this chat about the movie I read that 88 films will be releasing Night of the Comet on Blu-ray in the UK on the 24th of January 2024. So, there'll soon be even fewer excuses for you not owning a copy of this amazing movie. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 119 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and would like to check out our further content, you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, X and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. The next episode, it's our episode before Christmas episode. And we're not just celebrating one Christmas. We are going to be celebrating four Christmases with Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon. First time viewing for me. Don't know what to expect, but love Reese Witherspoon, one of my favourite actresses of all time. We've done a face-off on her before on this podcast, so always happy to watch a movie of hers, even if it might not be the best. We'll find out. Until then, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.